expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. In the last century before the birth of the new faith called Christianity, which was destined to overthrow the pagan tyranny of Rome and bring about a new society, the Roman Republic stood at the very center of the civilized world. Of all things fairest, sang the poet, first among cities and home of the gods is golden Rome. Yet even at the zenith of her pride and power, the Republic lay fatally stricken with a disease called human slavery. The age of the dictator was at hand, waiting in shadows for the event to bring it forth. Morning, London. It is Thursday, April 19, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be Boy, what a pile of subjects we've got today, Robert. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you think you can squeeze a word in edgewise through all the topics we'll be going through today. In the second half of the program, I've brought a bit of a smorgasbord of topics with me today. And if they have anything in common, it is that we dealt with a lot of these issues in detail on previous shows. So I'm doing a little bit of a follow-up. What happened since? We last spoke about a number of these issues. Not all of them, but they include everything from a follow-up on the Caterpillar situation, even on the, on the Tintin movie. We're going to reanimate that debate. And free speech on campus. Uh, the Red Alert continues, apparently, out in Alberta now. And we're going to talk about green energy and Norwegian terrorism and are you happy, which is one, the one subject I think we didn't discuss before. And in the first half, that was just the second half of the program, Robert. <laughs> the first half, of course, we'll be talking about civilization. Are we losing it because of dim-witted luminaries? <laughs> and are we chartering a flight, I think is what you're starting off with, Robert, to the dictator via, in celebration of our 30th anniversary of... The Charter's repatriation, is that what you're talking about? That's right, about yeah, Bob, yeah. I'm just writing down all the things you're going to be talking about. Boy, that is a lot. It's not a smorgasbord, that's a potpourri. Well, potpourri, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's not a smorgasbord, you don't get to pick. We're doing them all. We're going to try anyway. <laughs> See how many we can get to. Well, let's start off with the Charter rights, because um, as everybody knows, probably, even though the government didn't really celebrate it on April 17th, just a couple of days past, um, it was the 30th anniversary of the proclamation of the Canadian Constitution and the repatriation of the Constitution with the inclusion of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, in the past 30 years, what can we conclude from this? Well, first of all, my first conclusion is I think that we're a nation only 30 years old. I don't think our nation started in 1867. It started on April 17, 1982. Really? Because up until that day, we had to go cap in hand to the British Parliament and the British House of Lords and ask for them if we ever wanted to change anything in our Constitution. That's not the sign of a, a sovereign nation. That's not the sign of a mature nation. So anyway, let's get into this then. We're talking about two topics here. The patriation... Well, so, so that, that's an interesting observation because you're saying then, unless you have the ability to change your Constitution, 
you can't be fully considered a nation until... I don't consider it uh, consider ourselves a, a fully sovereign nation if we have to go to another country to ask permission to do anything with our own laws. Do then, you? Well, how do you deal with the UN then? The UN is becoming the sovereignty of the world. Are we all becoming nationless then? You know, it, mm, to interesting, me, yeah. Yeah. No, we actually don't have to abide by the United Nations uh -huh. declarations or anything like that. Uh -huh. Okay. Anyway, so let's talk about the first um, part of this, which is the patriation. The patriation of the Constitution, I think, was a good move, a great move. Uh, up until that time, like I said, our Constitution was a British law. It wasn't even our law. It was a British law, the BNA Act. It could only be changed by an act of British Parliament, yet only with our consent. There was a, a sort of a rider in there, but I think that only came after about 1931. It was on that date that Canada was able to be, for the first time, to amend its own constitution, and thus we, as a nation, gained one more degree of sovereignty. In fact, some might regard this, I certainly do, as the real birth of our nation, and for how can a nation call itself sovereign if it has to go to a parliament of another nation to ask permission to change its constitution? So, by this definition, Canada is only 30 years old as a true sovereign nation, part yeah, of the, the commonwealth of nations, but still sovereign in its own right. You know, I, I see what you're saying because, you know, you, one might say that a nation really is the sum total of its values, and when did that start? And that would go take us back to the British system. But you look at other countries since the war and just before, like even European nations like Italy and countries of that nature, um, just had constitutions that were brought into being in this in this very uh, in this very century or the last century, right? Mm. So um, they're very new too. Canada, by some standards, is older than Italy, but apparently not by yours now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So actually, this is ironic because um, I think we owe a debt of gratitude to Prime Minister at the time, which is, of course is uh, Pierre Trudeau. Mm -hmm. One of, well, I think, one of the worst prime ministers we ever had, except for this particular instance, I really think he should be lauded. And the nine provincial premiers who brought the Constitution home after decades of attempts. Ironically, the only province who objected was, of course, uh, Quebec, which was under a sovereignist government. So they objected to the repatriation of the Constitution, which made us more sovereign. And uh, they objected to it. Irony. In fact, the entire impetus for the patriation of the Constitution and the inclusion of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was the threat from of Quebec separation. So much has been said by Trudeau himself uh, in the House of Commons just four years earlier. So patriation was definitely a positive action, but what of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? I've argued on this program before that the uh, Charter will prove to be our downfall as a civilized country. Prior to the Charter, our individual rights were properly respected in law, 797 years of law, to be precise, since it uh, has been countless thousands of judicial decisions which has made up our common law since the creation of the Magna Carta, also called the Great Charter of the Liberties of England and the Liberties of the Forest in 1215. So almost 800 years of decisions which have properly recognized our rights to life, liberty, and even property amongst many, many other rights, all of that has been swept away by the delineation or demarcation of some rights into a Charter of Rights. For when we list our rights in such a document, we lose those not listed. So, so, so the irony of this is that even though uh, you see this event as starting the country, it's also the event that you see ending the country. The patriation, yeah. I think, of it was yeah. uh, a good start, but the Charter of Rights, the inclusion of that, I don't think uh, was a good, uh, a good idea. 
Now, unlike the United States Ninth Amendment, which clearly notes that by listing rights, it's not meant that individuals did not possess other rights. They put that in their constitution in the uh, amendment, Ninth Amendment. Jefferson himself, in the Declaration of Independence, listed rights in a sense, but prefaced his list of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness with, among these are. Mm-hmm. Meaning there's lots of rights that people have, but among these, here are some of them. This is not the only flaw in the charter, by the way. It now gave group rights where none existed before, where some individuals... still don't exist. (laughs) Yes, it's true, they still don't exist. Philosophically, they don't exist. Now, where some individuals now had more rights than others by virtue of their either their language or their race or their minority status. Most typically, the ones with the uh, fewest rights were white men of British descent. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. So me, perhaps not you. I think you're of German descent, aren't you? Still, you probably mm-hmm. have less rights as the more people out, uh, out there as well. It limited our rights. Section 1 of the Charter states, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. To paraphrase that, you have these rights as long as Parliament or the courts say you have them, since if you cannot demonstrably justify them, and if you are not part of the majority, hence the use of the word democratic, then such rights must come second to the needs of society. In other words, we have no rights guaranteed in the Charter. It's an illusion. It contradicts the most important part of a right, and that is that it is unalienable, meaning it can't be limited or taken away. So in their ignorance of uh, precisely what an individual right is, the crafters of the Charter not only failed to protect our rights, they destroyed the very concept of what a right is. Because now people think differently of what a right is based on the language in the Charter. The U.S. Constitution quite clearly has the greater protection of rights when it says, Congress shall make no law regarding the first ten amendments to their Constitution. The notwithstanding clause of the Canadian Charter, section 33, gives government an out over many of the listed rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom from unreasonable search and seizure. To give Trudeau credit, he opposed any notwithstanding clause. He didn't want the notwithstanding clause. It was Chrétien and some of the uh, other premiers or premiers who crafted it in, in order to break a deadlock on the issue, the so-called kitchen accord or whatever they called it. So when all is said and done, I want to celebrate our true independence from Britain on this 30th anniversary of the patriation of the Constitution, but let's also mourn the destruction of our individual rights and freedoms with the creation of this Orwellian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Well, let's let's not also forget that the purpose of a proper Constitution in a free society is... To limit the actions and power of government, right, Robert? It's not about limiting the, or defining the rights of the citizens. That's where we got off track. And constitutions, a good constitution, is there for that explicit purpose, to limit the government. End of story. It's only there as a government guide, not as a citizen's guide. That was how the American Constitution was first crafted, was a limit on, on, the, on Congress. Congress shall not do right. these things. That was it. But the Canadian Constitution went... Uh, took the other tact. It took a a more of a Napoleonic code thing saying that 
you have these rights. We're giving you Well, these sure. Rights. It was born of the state. It came from the other direction, That's whereas right. the Americans had this revolution. Interesting thoughts, Robert. What's next? Well, we're going to hear a little clip from uh, some of the debate that preceded the repatriation or the patriation mm-hmm. of the Constitution. And back, this comes from 1978. It's um, parliamentary debate between Trudeau, Joe Clark, leader of the opposition at the time, and Ed Broadbent. Now, I remember these days quite clearly. And that was actually a time when Parliament too. was quite a show. And um, a show. I think there's some commentary in here, too. There's also some commentary. Peter, Peter Kent, Kent yeah. um, it's, a, it's, it's from, I think it's a Global or CTV. Mm-hmm. So you can find it on YouTube, actually, is where I grabbed it. Anyway, we'll be back right after this. Good evening, I'm Peter Kent. Tonight, a special 60-minute edition of News Magazine in which we'll look at the white paper on constitutional reform tabled in the House of Commons this afternoon by Prime Minister Trudeau. The document is called A Time for Action Toward the Renewal of the Canadian Federation. In it, the Prime Minister says he is determined to give the country a new constitution by July 1st, 1981. Recognizing his two previous failures to gain agreement between Ottawa and the provinces, Trudeau says this time, while consensus will still be sought, He intends to proceed on his own to change those parts of the British North America Act which are solely within federal jurisdiction. He wants to replace the Canadian Senate with a more representative upper house to be called the House of the Federation. He wants to enhance the status of the Supreme Court in a new constitution and he wants to write a new Canadian Bill of Rights. Our present uncertainty is not helping the country. It is drawing strength required elsewhere jeopardizing our economic progress and eating away at the world world community's much-needed confidence in Canada. The federal government therefore urges all Canadians to join it in settling this question without further delay by renewing our federal pact and our sense of belonging to this country. Through this renewal will come the other changes, economic, social and cultural, to which we are entitled. It is time for action. The objective of the document I've just tabled is precisely to start this process. It sets out the principles of this renewal and their application to the workings of our federal system and to the institutions provided for in the Constitution. It is no coincidence that it is entitled a time for action. It is our firm intention to take concrete measures according to a very specific timetable. To our proposals for renewal, we set only two preconditions. The first is that Canada continue to be a true federation, namely a state where the federal parliament has real power and the provincial legislative assemblies have powers no less real. The second is that the freedoms and fundamental rights of the human being be written into the Constitution. The fact is that this document fails to reflect, as perhaps, sadly, its authors fail to recognize, that the paternalistic tone of this proposal is itself a major modern cause of distrust and of disunity in Canada. This process, sir, will come to nothing unless that is recognized. Indeed, it may come to worse than nothing because it may deepen the divisions that exist among Canadians. Now, sir, that is particularly true 
since the reaction of the separatist government of one province is already predictable. That makes it all the more essential that every step is taken to secure consensus among the other provinces. And that, sir, that will happen only if they are treated as full partners in this process and are not faced with deadlines and are not faced with declarations that may turn out to impede agreement. The document that the Prime Minister has tabled, I regret to say, fails. It is totally devoid of a broad-scale imagination. Regrettably, it deals only with the most general proposals on the Constitution and the establishment of linguistic and other rights. As important as these are, Mr. Speaker, they are not new. We all assume proposals that would be made concerning them would be made at some point during this year. And in this sense, we accept and support them. But I say, Mr. Speaker, it is worse than regrettable that a document entitled A Time for Action is exclusively legalistic in its proposals for the future of our country and of our people. Proceedings in the House of Commons this afternoon discussing the Prime Minister's white paper. Don McNeil, uh, Trudeau's document lays out a very tight schedule for constitutional reform. That's right, Peter, and timing, I think, is all important in, uh, in this whole affair. I think we should all remember that the Canadian Constitution, as it's called, is really a piece of British legislation that's kept at Westminster in, in London. And as the Prime Minister said himself this afternoon, we've been trying seriously for some 52 years to try and get it back, that he himself has tried twice, as you've said, in the last uh, 10 years, and he has failed to do that. This is his third attempt at this thing in 10 years, and this time he's going to do it differently. And that's, this is where I think the timing becomes very important. What he's done is separate it out. He's going to try and do it piece by piece. He will take all the areas of jurisdiction over which he has the power to act alone, that is where the federal government can act alone, and he will implement those in what he calls phase one. And he says he will have those done by July 1979, when, incidentally, his term as prime minister runs out. The other more contentious areas, the areas that deal with the division of powers between him and the provinces, which has always led to the breakdown before, he's put into something he calls phase two, which will not be done until 1981. Now, this can be considered to be a very clever tactical ploy. It's time to take into account, I think, very important political events that are coming up within the next year or so, that is the federal election and the Quebec referendum, and that he can appear to be looking as if he's taking action. Joe Clark said it's an illusion of action. Maybe, maybe not. So welcome back to CHRW 94.9 FM, where we're talking about the Canadian Charter of Rights. Now, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is only one of many legal documents which have attempted, this one unsuccessfully in my opinion, to bring about a civilized society. One where the government respects the citizens and the citizens respect the government. And peace and order are maintained and the people can live and commerce flourish. This is not to say that we have no degree of civilization in our country, however. <laughs> it's a no, different thing. It's all a matter of degree. And, and direction. And direction, yes. yes. Where are we going? Civilization is often meant advanced or complex, you know, being advanced or complex in such things as architecture, culture, art, technology, division of labor, trade. You look up in the dictionary or on the internet, a definition of civilization, those are the kinds of things that you talk Those are superficial, if you ask well, me. Well, they are and they aren't, because they are the consequence the of, a, of a society 
Like, what, what do we mean when we say somebody is behaving uncivilized? We mean he's going berserk, he's acting violent, he's using force, right? Mm-hmm. None of those things, none of those architecture things, culture things, could exist without the creation and enforcement of objective laws. Correct. That's, that's the, the hallmark, that's the characteristic of a civilized society, those objective laws, and most importantly, their enforcement. It's no good to have laws if they're not enforced. And to the degree that such laws recognize the supremacy of the individual over the collective and his concordant individual rights, such society could be said to be civilized. But just because we have technology and art and culture does not necessarily mean we have civilization. Take some of the countries in the rest of the world, for instance, countries in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, countries like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, communist China, If you visit these countries, you see the great trappings of wealth and a somewhat decent standard of living. But this, I think, is a thin veneer of civilization, concealing a subculture of primitive tribalism and brutality. These cultures use the technology developed in the civilized West. As a cargo cult, primitive culture would have worshipped a Coke bottle dropped from an airplane into their midst. They have no idea as to the complex societal conditions necessary to create, not necessarily build, but create such items as automobiles, airplanes, skyscrapers, iPads, you name the yeah, technology. Good distinction, not just the building, but the creating. Right, they can build it. I mean, we send off to China for, to, hey, look, build this stuff. You're good at putting A into B, slot A into slot B. Once we show you where the slots go. That's right. <laughs> Where we create this stuff, the civilized West, the civilized part of the world creates it, you just build it. You're good at that. I think they're just simply imitating. They have that veneer of civilization. We shouldn't feel so smug, however. But, but as, however, if you imitate something that works, does it not also work? <laughs> or does it... Well, I'm talking about the creative. Where, well, does, true, where yeah. do the creators yeah. come from? That is yeah, they're not, crea- they're, not, they're not imitating the creative element of, no, of our that's, society. You only get that creative element when you have a civilized society. Where are the great uh, Chinese inventors? Where are the great Saudi Arabian inventions? Probably sitting in their jails. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The creative minds are killed. That's not civilization. You look at our art. I mean, I, I just... When I was thinking about this, I was going through the, all the countries in the world thinking, okay, what comes out as advanced societies, civilized societies? If, if you think of, for example, their movies, television, literature, um, art, architecture, I mean their architecture, not uh, German-engineered architecture um, imported into Dubai. I'm talking about their own architecture. And I'm thinking countries like the Anglosphere countries, Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand, etc. South Africa to a degree. Japan, most certainly. Some of the movies, uh, art that comes out of Japan is remarkable. It's a very civilized society, I think, to a degree. South uh, Korea. But then you have the other ones. Darkest Africa. And there's a word we call it, why we call it darkest Africa. Because it's dark intellectually, dark civilly. Um, a lot of Asia, a lot of the Middle East. Israel compared to the Arab countries, is remarkably civilized. Or if you ever watch one of those, uh, you know, from outer space pictures of the lights, North Korea is completely dark. <laughs> Except for Pyongyang is <laughs> yeah, a little yeah, bit of light right. there, yeah. <laughs> but we, like I said before, we don't have to, we shouldn't feel so smug because the once great West is now falling back into its own tribalistic and brutal past, if you ask me. The cause? The cause of any of this is always philosophy, ideas, 
We can blame such intellectually dim luminaries as Plato, Immanuel Kant, Karl Marx, Leon Trotsky, John Dewey, or more recently, Noam Chomsky, Maud Barlow, Naomi Klein, and their ilk. The results of accepting the philosophy of these people? For example, the Occupy movement, where hordes of shiftless second-handers break trespass laws, screaming for entitlements with impunity for months. Mm -hmm. They're still out there in a lot of places. The race-based policing policies of the OPP in Caledonia, where aboriginals can uh, assault, uh, maim, uh, kill, burn, loot, pillage, right in front of the OPP. In fact, assault the OPP and never get arrested. While if you're a white male, white male walking down the same street raising a Canadian flag, you're arrested. Gary McHale. That's tell basically you all about that. what we're witnessing happen. The cowardice of police who patiently waited outside the Columbine High School as the murderers continued their murdering spree for fear of getting injured. You could hear the gunshots and the students being killed and they just sat out there waiting. The black bloc tactics of the G20 protesters in Toronto setting light to police cars as the police stood idly by and watched it. Yeah, but they're getting ready to bounce on those 420 protesters tomorrow. That's right. That's another, <laughs> because you know why? Talk. Because pot smokers are passive and, and tolerant. Won't, and won't bother them and don't cause any peace problems. That's right. And that's right. why they go after them. But if you decide to blow up things and throw bombs, well, they'll wait there and it's take your the picture. Cowards. Yeah. Or at least the, the I, chiefs I don't, are. I don't know. We just, uh, there's no police protection. And there's nothing violent going on in the park. People standing around. with It's just unbelievable to me. Just think of the, the G20 and the police there. Um, what, who did they arrest? They arrested innocent men and women walking by, minding their own business, as hooded thugs smashed the windows and stole with impunity. You know, the Paris riots, the year before that. Uh, London riots last year, right? Well, there certainly are situations that get out of hand. I, I'm not sure that police are always equipped. I often wonder if the army well, just think in some of those situations. Just think of the Fleming Drive riots here in London a couple of weeks ago. What did the police do? <clears throat> Nothing. Absolutely. They stood by with the policy that it's easier for them just to, to blow off the steam, let it, let them get them out of the What they should have done was went in there with truncheons, rubber bullets, water cannons. With enough police, truck them in from Kitchener if they have to. They would have been in here in an hour. But no, they want to just diffuse the situation. And in the meantime, vehicles get burned, you think it's property that, you gets think, destroyed. You think that's the, the situation they're trying to diffuse? Because I could see that being cheered by a lot of people. But you know what happens? The next week, you get all the protesters, right? You get all the... That's the situation they're trying to defuse, is the reaction to their actions. And that's what happens. Right. So you have, you have tasering deaths of unarmed civilians. You have uh, student riots in Quebec right now over tuition increases. You know, the recent Richmond Row murder here in, in, in uh, London, where several hundreds of drunk revelers pour out of the bars every night at 2 in the morning, yet where's a cop? Mm -hmm. Not a cop to be seen. They know, that, they know that that stuff goes down every night on Richmond Row. The list of the failure of the police to inform our, enforce our laws is only increasing. The result, of course, is inevitable anarchy and the loss of civilization as we know it. Remember, I said you need objective laws and they need to be enforced for civilization to exist. And we still may have our technological goodies like the internet and iPads and fast cars and warm houses... But who cares about such things if the police can arrest you without cause or leave violent thugs to terrorize communities at the same time? We'll end up like Saudi Arabia and the Chinas of the world, civilized in appearance only, while in reality, we'll all become barbarians. And on that happy note, we're at the bottom of the hour. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I was just going to say, 
you were talking about the police not reacting to certain situations. You know, another one was just the situation that happened with James Balakowski on the weekend, right? James Balakowski, yeah. Oh, sorry. And, and what was his shock? Shock stock, stock yeah. yeah. But on a great uh, show for horror fans and... Uh, that's uh, horror. Horror. <laughs> <laughs> our, our fans. And he had, a, uh, he had a porn star there who was not going to be nude, and yet the very uh, very idea of having a, a porn star there um, brought in five police officers, three undercover police officers, a slew of uh, um, bylaw enforcement officers, fire inspectors, and yet the fire firemen themselves in the city compose in G-strings for a calendar on public property, and James couldn't have uh, this particular person on private property doing the same thing. It's a very interesting situation, isn't it, what's going yeah. on in this city, and the, the kind of priorities that police are picking on. And you have Occupy. Now, the people who were in the Occupy movement and took up all that time and all the police time and everything um, are now becoming spokespeople and being quoted in the papers and being given some level of respect by the very people who were locking them up. <laughs> In the weeks earlier. It's really strange. You know, the uh, unbalanced way that the laws are, are uh, enforced is another mm-hmm. um, indicator of this lack of civilization I'm talking about. But anyway, when we okay. come back from the, the, um, from the break at the bottom of the hour here, we're going to be talking about a lot oh, of topics, of Bob. Starting off with uh, the situation at Caterpillar. Okay, mm-hmm. and we'll be back right after this. One thing I could never stand was to see a filthy, dirty old drunkie howling away at the filthy songs of his fathers and going blurp, blurp in between as it might be a filthy old orchestra in his stinking, rotten guts. I could never stand to see anyone like that, whatever his age might be, but more especially when he was real old like this one was. Can you spare some cutter, me brothers? <laughs> Go on, do me and you bastard cowards. We don't want to live anyway. Not in a stinking water like this. Oh? And what's so stinking about it? It's a stinking water because there's no law and order anymore. It's a stinking water because it lets the young get onto the old. You don't. Oh, it's no water for an old man any longer. What talk about water is it at all? Men on the moon and men spinning around the earth and there's not no attention paid to earthly law and order no more. Uh, oh, dear Look, Mr. Fedden, I work for a living and I'm kind of in a hurry. Listen, Tarl. What's all this stuff about working for a living? Now, you mentioned that twice. Don't you think I work for a living? I didn't say. I've been working for a living ever since I was a kid. And at a job a lot tougher than mowing lawns, I'll tell you that. Right up until last week when I got laid off, I drove a cat. You know what a cat is, Arthur? Well, I can tell you this, it ain't no sports car. It's a big earth mover. 
You ever move the earth, Arthur? No, of course not. You manicure it. I gotta get going. No, what's the rush? I, I guess I drink too much. So I can, I can tell you, man to man, it's been pretty rough lately. I, well, they canned me for my job. Put somebody else on the cat. Can you imagine? Just, just, just because I had a few lousy drinks one day. No. No, it wasn't the booze. That was just an excuse. It's all that cheap labor they're bringing over here. Yeah, they're letting them in from everywhere. Mexico, Puerto Rico, China, Japan, foreigners. We make Hawaii a state, and look what we get. Yeah, that's what happens when you make Hawaii a state. Well, we're, I'm glad we never <laughs> you made Hawaii a state. get foreigners coming into your country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, from one excuse to the other. You know, that, that was actually from a very early episode of The Twilight Zone. I remember that one with uh, George Takei. George Takei, yeah, who played Sulu on uh, Star Trek. And um, the, the reason I was thinking of that is because there was an article in the Free Press just recently on March the 27th, in fact, with a headline, it is very frustrating, and with the byline saying, CN places order with cat for locomotives by Norman Devono. And reads, only weeks after the shutdown of London's electromotive plant, parent company Caterpillar Inc. has received a massive order from Canadian National. It is very frustrating to hear a Canadian operation would go to CAT for that purchase, said Bob Scott, CAW Local 27. Caterpillar is ruthless the way they treat their workers. I'm surprised companies are still buying from them. Electromotive and Caterpillar declined comment Monday on the deal. It is very difficult, said Bob Orr, assistant to CAW National President Ken Lowenza. They did express to us they preferred locomotives made in Canada and would have liked for that plant to survive. Of the 465 unionized workers who lost their jobs, about 35 have so far found other work, Scott added. And that pretty well sums up what has happened to the Caterpillar situation since. Any, any thoughts, Robert? You reap what you sow. There you go. You know, I guess, <laughs> you can't say much more than that, eh? Um, that's very true. How true it is. Too bad. Another issue that we were talking about earlier, going from one subject to another, do you remember back on, um, we're talking back on, uh, I don't know how long ago this was, where the Norwegian terror killer suspect... Um, Anders Breivik. Yes. Well, when we did the show on him, mm. you remember the discussion and what we were talking about, whether he was sane or not, right? Right. I basically... Well, they were saying that he was a psychopath, and I'm saying, no, he was a sociopath, which is not necessarily a, an infliction where you just can't say right from wrong. You know right from wrong. Yes. You just don't care. <laughs> and, I, and I was playing around with the idea. I said, look at... We often jump to the conclusions that people like these are crazy, insane, just because based on the actions that they do, we just write them off. Okay, anybody that can do that is crazy. And I was suggesting that perhaps that's not the case. Well, lo and behold, on April 11th in the Free Press, we see the headline, Norwegian terror killing suspect deemed sane in new finding. And this is out of Oslo. Anders Bering Brevik was sane when he killed 77 people in attacks he saw as punishing pro-immigration traitors in Norway. A psychiatric team said Tuesday, contradicting a prior report that found him psychotic. His trial on terrorism and murder charges is scheduled to start in Oslo next week, which means this week we've already seen some coverage from it, and he's mm -hmm. just doing the very things I guess we would have expected him to do. 
And, uh, but they say, we're talking about psychosis and we found no evidence of it. Psychiatrist Askar Aspas told reporters after submitting a 30 or 310-page report based on weeks of round-the-clock observation. Aspas was one of two experts appointed to provide a second opinion after the initial finding caused a public uproar. Interesting that people would get upset with, an, with a finding that he's insane. Obviously, or, or, or no, before. The oh, previ- oh, yes, previous right. insane, uproar, yes. yes. So defense attorney Geer Lepstead told reporters Bravik was satisfied by the new report and that Norwegians should brace themselves for tough and demanding testimony by the killer who espouses far-right ideology. Yeah, right. Not only will he explain his actions, but he'll also say he regrets that he didn't go further, Lipset said. If Brevik is found guilty and the judges agree he's sane, he could face 21 years in prison with the potential for unlimited extensions to prevent him from repeating his crimes. Or, if he's ruled psychotic, he could face an indefinite period of psychiatric care in a locked facility. End of story. Pretty well means that he's going to be doing the same penalty either way except once one under a psychiatric ward and the other in a jail. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm usually against the death penalty, but I think in this case I'm starting to change my mind. <laughs> really? <laughs> 77 people, you know, kids, no no doubt about his guilt. Well, yeah, he's, he's again, you know, that's a, a situation you have, isn't it? They don't have the death penalty there. No. Absolutely. Now... Before we go to the next break, I wanted to touch upon a... I don't know that we discussed this issue before, but I ran into an interesting article in one of those magazines that they hand out that you get in your mailbox every now and then, and this one was called Simply London Magazine. And there's an article in there that caught my attention because at first I thought the writer was moving in in the right direction, and the subject is actually happiness, believe it or not. And, you know, we always hear the the two phrases, life, liberty, and property, or sometimes you hear life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the two ways that those three things are grouped together. And this article is called Happiness, No Simple Matter, appeared in Simply London magazine <laughs> by Mike Stevens on April 10th of this year. And he writes, which what got me thinking about this, I'll just go along with what he's saying here. Too often, the attainment of happiness is seen as a selfish, shallow, or frivolous concern. Quite the contrary, happiness is not only important for ourselves, but a moral obligation in terms of how we relate to others. Now, there, I kind of thought, well, a moral obligation, that was interesting, but I wouldn't call it a moral obligation, I would have called it a moral responsibility to oneself, not to others, and that's where I think we get on different tracks. Mm -hmm. And he suggests, if we are to extend the required effort to become happier, to learn skills and outlooks that will enable us not to despair, we must first acknowledge the importance of the task. In other words, we must take happiness seriously. The point is that sustained happiness is not the alignment of any formula, events, or outside forces. It basically starts and ends with a choice to start being happier and more pleasant, despite what is happening in our lives and around us. Expecting things to be good all, all the time also undermines one of the most crucial ingredients for happiness, gratitude. We are not grateful for the things that we expect. Rather than being grateful for the good times, we begin to see them as entitlements. And if you think yourself entitled to only the good in life and exempt from the bad, be prepared to kiss any chance of happiness goodbye. Abraham Lincoln once said that, quote, we are as happy as we decide to be, end quote. Happiness is a choice, he says. And that's the whole gist of the two-page article from which I took 
the basics out of. Any thoughts off the top of your head? Well, I, I think he's right to a, to a degree, though. I mean, if you're in pretty bad circumstances, sometimes it's pretty hard to be well, he to choose that. to be happy. Oh, yeah, he, he, that was all part of it. But, you know, some people can still maintain happiness no matter what their circumstances. Mm-hmm. And my feeling on it, well, well, it's not quite, you know... I, it's not the happiness you choose, it's the potential consequence. That's the potential consequence of your choices. The pursuit of happiness is not the pursuit of happiness, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's the a, pursuit of things which make you happy. Right, commitment to work towards the achievement of your value, you know, of your values. I was looking, I was checking Ayn Rand's definitions on things, and she, st- she, she defines happiness as, as a state of consciousness which proceeds from the achievement of one's values. The maintenance of life and the pursuit of happiness are not two separate issues. There she would agree with the author, right? To hold, one, to hold one's own life as one's ultimate value and one's own happiness as one's highest purpose are two aspects of the same achievement. And here's where the other writer is saying, no, you've got to be happy for others, right? Which is a whole different situation. Happiness is a state of non-contradictory joy, says Rand, a joy without penalty or guilt. A joy that does not clash with any of your values and does not work for your own destruction. And so that's basically a a, a big contrast between the two ways of looking at happiness. And so uh, with that, when we return on the other side of this break, we'll be reanimating the animation debate around Steven Spielberg's wonderful movie Tintin, which we reviewed in some detail only a few broadcasts ago. But first... Here is an audio excerpt from Deep Space Nine, I think, Robert, that will say more about the nature of happiness and of its relationship to love than any explanations or anything we could possibly say on the subject. If you don't get this, well, then nothing we can say on the matter would make any difference anyway. We'll be back right after this. Kanko. There's an agrobiology expedition leaving for the Janitsa Mountains in Bajor in two weeks. They need a chief botanist. I think you could probably qualify. On Bajor? That's right. They've never surveyed these mountains. It's a very important expedition. How long is this expedition supposed to last? Six months. I can't leave you and Molly for six months. But you can take Molly with you. I've already checked. As for me, well, Bajor's only three hours away in a runabout. We can manage. When we moved here, we made an agreement. I know. And I'm not trying to back out of that agreement. Don't let this business about the school make you feel guilty and... Well, this isn't about guilt. This is about you being happy and me knowing that you're not. I made a promise to stay with you and make this work. I know. You're a botanist. That's what you train to do. That's what you love. Be a botanist, Keiko. Be the best damn botanist in the galaxy. Nothing. We'll check that pocket, Tom. No, I've looked in this one already, I'm sure of it. We'll have a look at his socks. Have you found it? He doesn't have it. 
It's not on him, boss. It's not here. Not here? Then where is it? Where's what? Oh, I am tired of your games. The scroll from the unicorn. A piece of paper like this. You mean the poem? Yes. The poem written in Old English? Yes. Was inside a cylinder? Yes. Concealed in the mast? Yes. I don't have it. You know the value of that scroll. Why else would you take it? Two ships. Two scrolls, both part of a puzzle. You have one. You need the other. But that's not it. There's something else. I will find it. With or without your help. You need to think about exactly how useful you are to me. If that sound, or that scene rather, sounds unfamiliar to you, the last thing you might guess is that it's from an animated feature. And as I raised the issue when we talked about the Tintin movie last, which was on March the 8th, if you want to check it out online, that was a question rolling around my mind. Remember, Robert, we were discussing the whole animation aspect of the movie because of how real that animation looked. And we determined at the end of our conversation that Tintin did indeed meet the criteria for being called an animated feature. But since our discussion, there's been one serious objector to placing the movie in the animated category, and that's been the Oscars. I was looking at this article by uh, Sun in the Sun Media column, movie reviewer Bruce Kirkland, on March 23rd, headlined it with the heading, Getting Motion All, <laughs> okay, without the E in front of it. Oscar foolishly didn't consider motion capture Tintin an animated film. And he writes, Great Snakes. Where do we hear that before? <laughs> Steven Spielberg's wonderful animated film, The Adventures of Tintin, is a visual delight and great storytelling. But is The Adventures of Tintin really an animated film? Not according to the, anim- uh, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. Once dis- Oscar disqualified Tintin for a nomination in the Best Animated Feature category, which was eventually won by Rango. According to Oscar, quote, an animated feature film is defined as a motion picture with a running time of more than 40 minutes in which movement and characters' performances are created using a frame-by-frame technique. Motion capture by itself is not an animation technique. In addition, a significant number of the major characters must be animated, and animation must figure in no less than 75% of the picture's running time, end quote. Now, that's Oscar's definition. And, writes Kirkland, this does not jive with other award groups. The Adventures of Tintin won the animated feature category at the Golden Globes. It was nominated in the same category in Britain's BAFTAs. The Producers Guild of America named it winner in its animation slot. Even the Annie Awards, which are held only for animated films, accepted Tintin. It was nominated for five Annies and won two of them. So what's the problem? Motion capture. The Academy seems to be the only significant body that is resisting mocap as an art form. This is egregious in the feature animation race, but also in the acting categories. This is not just voice work. It is pure performance, just as Jamie Bell so vividly lives inside of the Tin Tin character. The point is that once the mocap performances are locked in, the computer animators go to work. That's just as important. And it is an animation to everyone except that stubborn fellow, Oscar. The time to give motion capture its proper due in Hollywood filming is already overdue. Meanwhile, however, we get to enjoy movies as good as... 
The Adventures of Tintin. Like his movie review, what do you think about the whole argument of motion capture, Robert? Actually, the very fact that you have this portmanteau of mocap, which is, of course, motion capture, mm-hmm. I've never heard that before. It means that it's probably become, going to become mainstream. I mean, it's been in so many movies. It, it's like... I even remember it from an old... Um, in a sense, it was sort of a motion capture. It was an old uh, Max Fleischer cartoon uh, of Satchmo, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And um, he was uh, motion captured on film in a, in a strange way. So it's been around for a long time, but the use of computers to do it is now so ubiquitous throughout the film industry that they better get their uh, definitions straight because uh, otherwise there are a lot of films are not going to be properly recognized for the artworks they are. And and Kirkland seems to be implying that there could be some threat to the uh, even the acting careers of certain people if they don't get considered in, in these situations. Um, you were talking yesterday about the other actor in this movie, too. Andy Serkis, yeah. yeah, he did uh, Gollum. And um, I think he was passed over for that, though. Uh, he was nominated, I think, for an acting mm. award. And, that, and yet he doesn't appear in uh, Lord of the Rings at all. It's Gollum, whose um, his motions were based on his actions right. through mocap. And he also played the captain, the voice of the captain and the motion capture animated character in the Tintin as well. And what else did you say he played in? Um, I believe he was, and it's in the article somewhere, that he was uh, played a character in one of the um, Planet of the Apes movies. Oh, right, yes. And um, they were questioning, well, you know, with all that makeup on, can you really consider him an actor, right? And I'm going, okay, then it goes the other way. Well, did Rowdy McDowell get an acting award for uh, the original Planet of the Apes, I wonder? I'm not sure, I don't recall. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. Yeah, you could, because you couldn't tell it was him. (laughs) Yeah, but the acting, even through the makeup, was great, you know? Oh, yes, So that must have been a challenge, to say the least. So what's our decision? Do we still regard it as animation and it's okay? I think it's animation. Yeah, it's computer animation. And you can see the mocap. Remember how we even talked about that camel? We were looking at that camel, how it was motion. It just looked so real. And I think mocap is becoming like um, almost a commodity in computer software and programming. That once you have all these, these formulas, what do you do? You throw them out because you know them? You know, you, the computer now knows how motion is formulated and you can we can and you know make that fresh fresh stuff we don't have to do future mocap anymore right we work from what we have you know and i think that's how art is built oddly enough i mean here i am advocating for it to be called animation and yet i think that the actors who whose uh, motions were recorded i think that they should be considered for live uh, awards as well because and what, Without, about the, and what about the voices? You know, the voices, the voices is a whole separate yeah. point. And sometimes the voice is not the same as the actor. Yeah, we sort of have this blend of animation and live action here that's uh, causing a little difficulty. Uh, actually, and you also mentioned too how how special effects are used even in normal films. You know, like I remember watching the making the of a, a James Bond, a recent James Bond film, where there's this scene where he's kissing his love on on a beach mm-hmm. in the Caribbean, and when they filmed it. The sky had lots of clouds in it. The, the beach actually was littered with a lot of uh, seaweed, and they didn't like that, so they just digitally uh, removed them. They removed the clouds, made it sunnier, got all the seaweed off the beach, and you never know it. Yeah, you often wonder why why some movie that just seems like an ordinary movie won a special effects award. Right? <laughs> yes. Okay, let's move on. Let's see, what, see what else we can fit in here. Free speech on campus. Occupy Architect Battles Campus banned by Dale Carruthers in the Free Press, and apparently... 
Uh, an architect of the Occupy London movement is calling on Western University, where we're located now, to overturn a one-year ban slapped on Mike Roy for taking part in a campus demonstration here. Now, he's not a university student. Apparently, he contributes to Western's radio station right here and has been quoted in the paper as saying, quote, None of the other protesters received this notice. University is supposed to be a place of dialogue and discussion. And to which I would say, yeah, probably for the students in their academic setting, but not for physical protests on public access. Is that what it's for? This is (laughs) private property, remember, too. But even in the public areas on public private Mm -hmm. or public property, uh, private property. And he writes, the group of protesters, which included members of Occupy London, wore tape over their mouths and carried signs denouncing Israel's treatment of Palestinians, which we discussed on the show. Was that just last week, wasn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, five days after that article appeared in the Free Press, the following letter to the editor shows up, written by none other than Al Gretzky, whose eloquent speech at the Israel Truth Week conference we aired last week on the show. And And it's online now, too. Yes. And he wrote, quote, Roy was upset with the ban because, as he stated, quote, university is supposed to be a place of dialogue and discussion, end quote. Really? And what activity was the protest group performing that got him banned? They were trying to silence the group Israel on Campus from holding a sanctioned information event where they could have dialogue and discussion. (laughs) I'm not sure why Roy is upset. This action by the university is leading to all kinds of dialogue (laughs) and discussion. That's funny, isn't it? Well said, Al. (laughs) You know, talking about dialogue and discussion, is that why they were wearing tape over their mouths so they could have a discussion? Yeah. (laughs) Right? Of course, they're protesting the idea that they weren't allowed to talk, which is silly. And finally, last but not least, if we can get this in here, a couple of minutes just to go, I think I can fit this in. We talked about the futility of conservation if you're trying to save money and about the shocking prices we're facing in energy prices, Robert. Remember last week? Yes. Well, I pick up the paper, I read this article, April 13th, London Free Press. We're in on the Green Revolution by Norman de Bono. And I just wonder why this wasn't the front page news story. And it was a little tiny article in which he quotes Ontario Energy Minister Chris Bentley on the subject of Ontario's green energy policy and plans. Now, I bet you you think you have some idea of why we're getting into this green thing, don't you? That we're doing it for the environment and we're doing it for save energy and all that stuff. Apparently that's not the plan. Quote, We do not serve just an Ontario market, but a worldwide market. And our strategy is to build a foundation to serve the world, the London West MPP said at a Green Energy Forum. Economic Development Minister Brad Duguid, also at the forum, said Ontario's future is tied to exports, and he'd like to see the green energy jobs rise to about 50,000. Said Greg Scallon, a California-based Sun Edison representative in Canada, we have government support to build here. Sun Edison manufactures solar panels in the Newmarket area. London is well-positioned to gain from a global economic development strategy in green energy, says Vinay Sharma, London's, London Hydro's chief executive. And I'm sitting there thinking, yikes. <laughs> Did you know that that's what we're, we're being used for? Is that what it is? I mean, this means the shock isn't anywhere near as big as it's going to be. So now we know Ontario's energy plan and strategy has nothing to do with providing us with energy, but with creating government jobs based on energy we're hoping to sell to foreign interests. That's the plan. And that's what happens when you start allowing government to be run like a business, you know? It becomes one. 
And the citizens just become the property, the capital, and the fuel that the state uses to force, you know, to subsidize their own foreign companies. And then, of course, business, capitalism, and producers get all the blame. I'm reminded of Brian Tobin's sprung greenhouse in Newfoundland. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but the government actually set up a greenhouse to to grow cucumbers. (laughs) What the are they thinking? Beside the marijuana patch, no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess that's it for another week. Got to get out of here before time runs out. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Our old friend, Treasury Secretary Kennedy, said that the recent rise in unemployment is acceptable. That's easy for him to say. He's got a job. <laughs>